0: Well, let's find a seat and a Bible or uh, one of the scripture journals that we handed out if you have that with you. If you didn't, if you, if you joined us after the, the mass handout of those, uh, we do have some extras back in the cafe area on the shelf back there. You're welcome to stand up and go grab one or two of those for people around you if you, if you need one and have that as sort of a study tool along with you. Uh, it's fine if you want to do that now. I'm Not offended when people walk out on me uh, too much. Um, While we're doing that, let's turn to Revelation chapter 10. I would like to start by sort of reviewing where we've been so far. I'm going to move this stance so that I can see you down here. Where we've been so far. In chapters 1 through 9. In chapter 1, we we see the opening to the book. John is writing to the first century churches, and he identifies himself as your brother and partner in tribulation, which is an interesting word. The church is going through tribulation at the time, and he identifies himself as his partner in that. But he doesn't stop with tribulation. He also says, I'm your brother and partner in tribulation, the the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus Christ. And I think that the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus may be a really nice summary statement as to what revelation is all about. And he tells us, blessed are those who read aloud the words of this book, those who hear it read aloud, and those who keep or put into practice or obey what is written in it. And then the glorified Jesus shows up and says in chapter 2, Write this down. Write down what you have seen, what is, and what will soon take place. And he articulates to John, letters to seven churches. Can you imagine Stonebrook getting in the mail a letter from Jesus? How cool would that be? We have seven of them. We've got a whole book of letters from Jesus. But directly to the saints at Stonebrook church or whatever, the angel of Stonebrook church. I wonder how we'd receive that to the angel of Stonebrook church. Uh, Who's that? um, By the way, I'm a little boring with this one. I just think it means to the messenger, the courier that's headed to Stonebrook, write this down and, and uh, have him deliver this message. Sorry, though there are angels watching out for us. That's a different teaching though. And he says in those letters, Importantly, that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees you. He knows what's going on. In fact, he talks about himself as the one who walks among the lampstands. He's the one who walks among the churches. Jesus walks among us. He knows us and he urges us to keep the faith, repent from the ways that we're sliding from away from him. Repent, turn back to him, persevere, keep the faith, and he promises a reward to those who conquer, to those who overcome in this life, who keep the faith, who die in the faith, who die in Christ. He promises a reward. And then in chapter four and five, it starts to get weird. He says, come up here. And he shows everything that's going on in the heavenly realm, in the heavenly throne room. He sees... Uh, weird monsters, maybe you've seen the memes on the internet, biblical angels, and it's this twirling wheels with eyes and wings and and everything like that. I saw another meme recently, biblical grills, and it was a a circular grill that was holding meat together, it was twirling like this over a fire, (laughs) and it looked just like the biblical angels meme, which is why it's funny. Jokes are better when you explain them, so... um, But what John does in the throne room is he hears something, and then he sees something. And he sets up a pattern of, I heard this, and then I saw this. And what he hears is, behold, the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered. And he says, I turn, and then what I saw was this lamb who was slain, probably his throat slit, blood-covered lamb. That doesn't look like a lion. That looks like a lamb. And he sets up this reality that the way we conquer and are lions, the way Jesus is a lion, a conquering kingly lion, is that he died and was raised again to new life. And he sets a pattern for us. And because he conquered in that way, he is worthy to unseal the seals. And a massive worship service breaks out. Chapter 6 is Jesus starting to unseal the seals. And the seals, seven of them, actually six as we've gone so far, uh, in, in this chapter anyway, six of them, are the unfolding of partial judgment on the earth. Unfolding of partial judgment. Only a quarter of the earth is affected by these judgments. And then in chapter seven, we have this sort of pause or this interlude between the seals and the trumpets. And we see, we, we, again, we hear something and we see something. We hear 144,000 sealed, protected from the judgment that is to come. And when he saw, he heard 144,000, and he saw a vast, uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language who were sealed and protected from the judgmental wrath of God. Isn't that amazing? And then last week, chapters 8 and 9, seven trumpets blow, actually six of them blow. We're on the seventh today, and we see here the same cycle of partial judgment on the earth for sin. Only a third of the earth is affected by these judgments. There's some increasing severity toward the end of the judgments. And we see there's an opportunity, there's a call to all, there's partial judgment on sin, there's partial consequences for sin, and yet people refuse to repent. And still the church is protected. But where we are now, What we're going to see today in the sixth and seventh trumpets, I think, is another interlude just like chapter seven. We're going to pause on the judgments for a bit and we're going to see again that the main message of this interlude, just like the the message of the interlude of chapter seven, is that God's people are protected by the Lord for the work that he has for them to do. That's what we're going to see today. That's the point today. God's people are protected by the Lord for the work that he has for them to do. Their eternal spiritual status is secure. If you are in Christ, if you are sealed by the lamb, Brad mentioned last week, that's an obvious allusion to Ephesians 1. Those who, are, who believe in Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you have been sealed, your eternal spiritual status is secure. Just like in chapter 7. But another note is added today. We're going to see and it's going to be a theme for the rest of Revelation that they might also, in addition to being sealed and their spiritual status, being secure and untouchable, they may also experience oppression, persecution, and possibly even martyrdom at the hands of the world who is in rebellion against God. But even though they might experience oppression, persecution, and possibly even being killed for their faith, they still win like our Lord and Master Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb, though we may be killed in this life, though in fact all of us will die in this life except for some at the very end of time who get to see him come back in person, which I hope that's us, we will be resurrected, victorious for eternal fellowship with our God. We will receive the reward with all of our brothers and sisters throughout history if we remain faithful to the very end. Some have noticed today that chapter 11, some have noticed uh, that Chapter 11 is the very center of revelation. We're now at the center of the book. We've made it, halfway. We're not halfway in the series, but we're halfway in the book. And some have argued that uh, just like climbing up a mountain, we're now at the peak of the message of revelation. We're going to see that in a little while, which comes with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So that's a little preview of what we're headed for today. Let's dive in. <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll opened in his hand. And he put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he cried out, seven thunders raised their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said, do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, there will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets." What an amazing picture. I'm going to just pause for a second before we try to figure out what's going on here and just stand in awe of this picture. This mighty angel burning pillars of fire for legs, face shining like the sun, a rainbow covering his head and his voice like the roar of a lion. I watched a lot of cartoons growing up as a kid, Transformers, Voltron. I want to introduce you to a word, it's a Japanese word, it's called kaiju, anybody familiar with kaiju, Godzilla, King Kong, Voltron, those shows I think help us have a picture of what a colossal being standing on the ocean and the land with a hand held to heaven might look like. Can you imagine walking out, walking out those doors and looking up and on the horizon you see this gigantic being? And I think we could spend our time nitpicking in all the details and trying to figure out what's going on with this angel, but I think instead we're just meant to... (laughs) Shrink back in awe a little bit. But we are going to look a little bit at the details. This word, a mighty angel, is an unusual word. It's not used in very many places in the Bible. Mostly here and later in Revelation, one other time. It's an unusual wording. And it's uh, this, this picture, if you look at the description of what's going on with this angel, it actually looks a lot like the description of the one seated on the throne in chapter 4, doesn't it? Which, as we said back then, is an image from Ezekiel. The glory of the Lord. We might be looking at here in this image, we might be looking at an image of Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth placing his foot on the ocean, claiming it, and the land, claiming it, and raising his hand to the heaven, claiming it. These are mine. It's possible. But it might also be, uh, this might also be the messenger of God that John refers to in chapter one, verse one. Could be. This is an image of Jesus, perhaps. It's just a messenger, just a mighty angel, unlike any we've ever seen before who happens to match the description of the glory of God, but we are looking at a glorious being. And he's got something in his hand, and we're going to talk about that when we get to verse 8. But I want to talk about these thunders first. What is going on with the seven thunders? And here's my crystal clear, definitive, authoritative answer to you all. We don't know. Moving on. We get to know the contents of the seven letters to the seven churches. We get to know the meaning of the seven seals. We get to hear the explanation of the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. But the seven thunders, we don't get to know about. But the important thing is what the gigantic angel says. There will be no more delay. After the visions that John has been seeing, it seems like they're talking about a delay. What delay? Well, it could be that this is the delay that people were talking about that first Peter addresses, that Peter had to address in his letter. Where is the coming of the Lord? It's, everything's been going on just like it was. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow as you understand slowness. He's patient, not wanting anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. And we hear that in answer to the cries of the martyrs under the altar. How long before we get justice and the Lord says to them, "Be patient and rest. There's more coming in. There's more coming in." So I think what we have here is an announcement that now we're about to see the end of the end. So far, the six seals are the seven some, <laughs> the seven seals and the six so far trumpets have only been partial judgment delay. The angel says, there's not going to be any more delay after this. But apparently there has been delay previously. Partial judgment. What's contained in the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls, that's going to be the final judgment. And after that, it says the mystery of the Lord will be complete. And then John is commissioned to go and declare what's in the seventh trumpet blast. He's recommissioned, really. He's he's been commissioned already. Christ said, write this down. But what we have here in chapter chapter 10, verse 8, let's read this. Then the voice that I heard from the heavens spoke to me again and said, Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, who's the they? The angel and the voice from the throne speaking as one. That's interesting. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. He told us to take the scroll from the angel. So he's told by them, take the scroll from the angel's hand. John is commissioned. Where have we seen this before? By the way, interpretive question we've been repeating when we're looking at Revelation and we're trying to figure out the details. A key question to ask, we'll talk about this more in a minute. Where have we heard this before? And the answer is, We have seen this before in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. The prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah, both prophets of judgment, prophets of woe against the nations. John is commissioned in exactly the same way that Ezekiel and Jeremiah is commissioned. He's to take the scroll. And the effect of eating the scroll is the same. It tastes sweet in his mouth. God's word is sweet to the believer, but it's bitter in his stomach. Says that in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The message is beautiful. It's a beautiful message, glorious. This is the Lord's will, but the judgments he is called to proclaim are not so much fun. And I think that if you are a believer in Christ and you've spent any sort of time sharing this message with people, with unbelievers especially, there is a sweetness to declaring God's glory, his word, his goodness, his mercy but then a bitterness knowing the consequences that await those who refuse him still. So John is commissioned as a prophet like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah. There's, this, is a, this, is, this is something that's kind of boring to say as a preacher, but I just need you to know if you're like, but wait, why aren't you talking about this detail? There is so much more here to talk about, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to put together what I think is the main thread, the main point of this, and in all the details are some really interesting pieces. But I'm going to move on, move us on, because the scene shifts. He's eaten the scroll, he's been commissioned as a prophet, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And then John goes from having a vision of this angel. So he's having a vision, he sees this angel, and he goes from that to hearing something described to him. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words. Here's the words. I think, by the way, these words go all the way, all the way down to to verse 13. Your Bible might have quotation marks in other places. I just want you to know that Greek manuscripts, they don't have quotation marks. So anytime you see quotes, it's a guess that the translation committee makes based on context. But I think, along with lots of other people, that the quote goes all the way down through verse 13. Here's the words. I was given a measuring read of the rod with these words. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it, because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days. By the way, that's the same. If you want to do the math, that's the same time period. Dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Underline that a second. If you want to know who these witnesses are, that's the answer. They're the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way they have the authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy they also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want and when they finish their testimony the beast comes up out of the abyss and will make war on them conquer them and kill them their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt where their lord where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, not all of them, not many of them, some of them, some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So that's pretty clear. Right? So we can move on to the next couple chapters. What is going on here? Let's look at this, just bullets real quick. What do we have going on here? Let's look at some of the details. John hears about the following. He hears. Uh, order to measure the temple and the altar and count those who worship there. Um, he hears that the outer courts are being trampled for 42 months. He, uh, by the way, the outer courts are being trampled by the unbelieving nations. Uh, they're being defiled by the unbelieving nations. But the temple and the altar, they're kept safe. They're not trampled, just the outer courts. He hears that Two witnesses prophesy for 1260 days, the same time period as the outer courts being trampled. He hears, notice this detail, he hears that they are invincible until they finish their message, until they finish their ministry. And he hears that when they finish their ministry, they are allowed to be killed by the beast. And he hears that they are resurrected three and a half days later and that their ministry shakes the city to its foundation. So let's dive in. What's going on with this temple? Is this a literal temple that John hears about? Is he seeing a vision of the temple that was destroyed in the year 70 AD, which would have been, you know, maybe a decade or two prior to the writing of this book? Or was this book written prior to the destruction of that temple and he was seeing the actual literal physical temple? There's some options. What's going on here? How do we make sense of all of these details about measuring the temple? Well, I'd like to go back to our important interpretive key that is very important for understanding this kind of literature. And that interpretive key is asking the question where have we heard this before? There are a few possibilities of where we may have heard this before. In Revelation, when you have a lot of details that are difficult to understand, we ask the question, where have I heard this before? And the things that are meant to be understood by us will be clear when we answer this question in the right way. How do we answer that question? Well, first, it's possible that John will explicitly define what's going on here. He'll explicitly, actually probably usually one of the angels will explicitly define what's going on. Hmm. My slides are not advancing. Is it? <coughs> I think these bullets are important for us. Keep going. There we go. First bullet: Some of these details will be explicitly defined by John, and that will make it a lot easier for us to track with what he's talking about. Uh, except in the case here, when he says these witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which means that he's clearly making a link to the second bullet. The second possible thing where we heard this before is that it's a clear, obvious Old Testament reference. And that's what's going on here with the two witnesses. We are meant to call to mind an obvious reference to the Old Testament. Sometimes we're meant to have heard something and go, oh, I've heard that before because it's a clear reference to other New Testament teaching. Sometimes the imagery of Revelation is meant to be an obvious cultural reference to something that is going on at that time in their area that the original audience would have clearly understood, and not only would the audience clearly have understood it, but we can still verify that that's the thing that they would have understood. I've heard a lot of interpretation of Revelation that says, ah, if you knew the secret thing that I know, that the first century audience would have understood it this way, and we have no other way of knowing about that, then I would just say, yeah, maybe. That's a neat theory. But if we have a way of verifying then it's a clear, and it's a clear cultural reference, then we can understand what he's referring to. But then what about the rest? Sometimes there's imagery that's not a clear Old Testament reference. It's not a clear New Testament reference. It's not explicitly defined by John. And it's not a clear cultural reference at the time. What are we supposed to do with that? The answer is we're supposed to say, I don't know what this means. And that's okay. If I was meant to know what it means, I would be able to trace it. Okay? We're going to be fine if we leave some of the detail on the table and don't do anything with it. That's going to happen in Revelation. So with these things in mind, what's going on with the temple? Where have we heard this before? Take this measuring reed, measuring rod, and measure the temple The other time that we hear this done in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 40. It's another apocalyptic, future-looking piece of literature talking about an end-times temple. The measurements don't match the first temple. The measurements don't match the second temple. They're, They're a different temple. So I don't think John is thinking about a physical temple here. I think he's being reminded by the voice in heaven of Ezekiel's vision. And the meaning of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel, the clear message there that God, that the angel explicitly tells Ezekiel, is that the measuring of the temple has a result of cleansing and protecting. It's going to keep out unbelievers. It's going to keep out idolatry and it's going to keep out the corruption and the abuse of religious power that got God Israel exiled in the first place. He's talking in Ezekiel, he's talking about a future temple that's going to finally be pure and the worship of God will be pure there. And the voice from heaven is telling John, here's a temple, measure it. And count the people in it. What's that mean? Measuring the temple and those within it is a mark of protection for those inside God's temple and worshiping around the altar, which is an allusion to Hebrews. A lot of teaching throughout Hebrews. This is the church. The church is being protected. It's being measured. It's being surrounded. It's the same message as chapter seven. The sealed. The sealed who will be spared the wrath of God. Who are the two witnesses? This is going to be fun. I've been wrestling with this one for a month. There's two options. There's two prominent, historic, ancient views. They both go back to at least the second century, i.e., as soon as John died. They both bear very similar meanings. But here's one view, one prominent view, and one that's especially popular today, I think, is that with these two witnesses, we're getting a glimpse into the future where two very remarkable individuals have a very unique and miraculous ministry in Jerusalem of judgment and preaching. That's one possibility. This ministry, it lasts for 42 months exactly, or 1,260 days, or three and a half years during the first part of what is known as the tribulation. A last opportunity for people to repent come to Christ. In this view, the two individuals are usually thought to be Moses and Elijah because of the description of the kinds of miracles, calling down plagues, shutting up the sky. Or they're more anciently, interestingly, they were thought to be a return of Enoch and Elijah because neither of them were said to have died in the Old Testament. And because it's appointed once for men to die, these two haven't died yet, so now they get their chance at the end of time to have one final Prophetic ministry and then be killed. Or the third the third option in this view is that there are two other unique individuals who we just don't know. They're not named and we'll find out someday. And that's good. That's a that's a view that godly people hold. There's another option. There's another option. It's another prominent view. And it's one I personally uh I, I personally hold. More. Again, when I say I hold a view about Revelation, I want you to know that that view is held with a very open hand. It's like sitting there, balancing. <laughs> and the other one's over here, and I see it too. And, and here's the wonderful thing. If I'm wrong about this view, because two individuals show up in Jerusalem and are preaching in the streets, like I go, oh, yeah, it is that. I was wrong. That's cool. That's easy. Easy to do. But here's a way that this has been understood throughout the centuries in the church as well. John is using symbolic imagery of two witnesses to speak about the ministry of the church during the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return. I think this view is likely and possible for a few reasons. First is, John is using symbolic imagery throughout this entire book. So far, we've seen a lot of symbolism. Lamps for churches, a woman coming in chapter 12, in the next chapter, we're thinking a woman who's referring to the nation of Israel, and so on. I think, therefore, it's very possible that these two witnesses aren't referring to two literal individual people. I mean, that's a thing that John does here, is he uses imagery, not literally, but symbolically, to refer to a literal thing. So I think this is an image of... The reason he uses the two witnesses image is because throughout the Old Testament law, two witnesses are required to establish the truth of an accusation in a court case. This isn't just one person's opinion. There are witnesses to this issue. These witnesses are said to collectively, not individually, carry the authority of Moses and Elijah So it's not that one is Moses and he has Moses' power. They both have the the power of Moses, and they both have the power of Elijah. Meaning, who's Moses? He wrote the law. Who's Elijah? He's a typical prophet. They carry these two witnesses, whoever they're symbolizing, carry the authority of the law and the prophets, which is a, a, a phrase that's often used to refer to the scriptures. The beast is said to make war on these two individuals, which is unusual phrasing if we're talking about one man facing two men. And at the same time, we see we see that the nations are all hearing about this, which in my younger years called to mind like satellite television, where everybody could see the news helicopters flying around the city square or the streets in Jerusalem. I thought that for a long time. That's possible. It's also possible that if this is the ministry of the church throughout the world, that is how the nations hear and are grieved by, grieved by the ministry of these two witnesses. The beast is said to make war, and in chapter 12 we find the same phrasing of the dragon waging war on the offspring of the woman who we know to be the church during the same exact 1260-day time span. More on her in a couple of weeks. Here's the message. Either way, this pattern of having a ministry to carry out, like Jesus did for about three and a half years, by the way, like these two witnesses do for about the same time span, and like we do as the church, this pattern of having a ministry carrying out during which time they cannot be overcome, they cannot be defeated. While they're carrying their ministry out, they cannot be defeated. Later, to be martyred or to die when it is their time, when their ministry is complete, and then to be resurrected and taken up to be with Jesus, that's a pattern that Jesus himself set. That's a pattern that ministries and churches and martyrs throughout the ages have set. That is a pattern that looks like it is the case here with these two witnesses, even if they are literal two individuals in the future. It's a pattern throughout the New Testament so what's the message? Well, here, actually, one more point. Because these two witnesses, we don't actually have to guess about who they are. They're explicitly defined. The two olive trees, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, where have we heard this before? The answer is Zechariah chapter 4. And both of these views agree with this, like they can't deny this allusion, allusion, this reference to Zechariah chapter 4. Who are the two olive trees in Zechariah chapter 4? Well, it's a prophetic book in the Old Testament. Zechariah is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. It is the same kind of prophetic book that Revelation is. It's an apocalyptic giving a view of what's coming at the end in certain places. And in Zechariah chapter 4, the two olive trees, the two olive trees are a priest named Joshua and a king named Zerubbabel. So if they're literally these two olive trees, interestingly, if they're these two olive trees who are standing for Joshua and Zerubbabel, none of the views, well, there's been a few obscure views who point to, well, maybe it's the second coming of Joshua and Zerubbabel because it says the two olive trees, but none of the major views hold that. None of the major views have pointed out that Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two that are standing in the streets in Jerusalem at the end times. But who are Joshua and Zerubbabel? They are God's anointed priest and God's anointed king. Here's what I see in that reference. And here's what the view that I I align myself with sees in this reference. Several times elsewhere in the New Testament, but especially in Revelation 1.6 and Revelation 5.10, it says that believers in Christ, God's people, are a kingdom of priests. So you have a priest and a king, a kingdom of priests, The other thing it says is that they are the two lampstands. Where else have we seen lampstands? Chapter 1. They're the churches. Lampstands are churches. Why 2? Why not 7? Like in chapter 1, because John likes to tinker with his numbers throughout the book. One reason he might be tinkering from 7 to 2 is that there are only two churches in the letters that he writes to that he doesn't have anything against. The message... Of the two witnesses and the temple, which is the same message. You notice no transition. It doesn't say, I saw the temple and then I saw two witnesses. It's the same statement. The message is basically a replay of chapter seven the protection of God's people. God's people will be kept safe from God's wrath during judgment. Their their spiritual safety is secure. Their eternal life is secure inside the temple and at the altar in Christ. Worshiping Christ, they are secure. And though their earthly power may seem insignificant next to the beast and the powers of the world, this image is just two individuals standing in a street, with no armor, no weapons, no tanks, no guns, no bombs, just preaching. And who's standing against them? The nations and the kings and the beast. That power seems insignificant. It's just two guys talking. That's a good reflection of what we feel like in the world, doesn't it? this world waiting and watching and hoping for their downfall, two individuals against the world, they will be kept safe during their mission on the earth. It's not until after they have delivered their message that they're allowed to be conquered by the beast. But here's the thing. Just like Christ was conquered by the beast of Rome... He wasn't really conquered, was he? He was conquered by the beast, Satan, wasn't he? He was killed physically, but he wasn't, was he? He used that conquering to defeat death and Satan and sin. And that's the pattern for us, church. That's the pattern for us. Church, here's the message. Our mission is secure. It's sure. Our eternal destiny is secured. It's safe. It's untouchable. Even though we face opposition and persecution and maybe even martyrdom, no one can stop us. The worst that the world can do to us is kill us. That's the message. The worst the world can do is kill us. And after that, they can't do anything else to us. Because we are then in the eternal state with our Father. I'm sorry, I'm going to be more technical when I say that for those of you who are like, no, oh, check. Check we are then with Jesus for eternity. The worst thing that can happen to us is that we get to go be with Christ, with our new bodies. All the pain and suffering gone, tears wiped away. That's the worst thing that can happen. Isn't that what we're all hoping for? And what's the message of Revelation? Hang on, keep preaching until that day. And that's how we overcome the beast. Then the seventh trumpet blows. Now we're at the climax of the passage, the center point of the book, and quite possibly the central theme of the whole book. The seventh trumpet blows. History comes to its conclusion, entering in a new age in which King Jesus finally rules over the whole world forever and ever. Read with me 11.14. The second woe has passed. Take note. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated on the throne before before God on their thrones, they fell face down and they worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, because you have taken great power and have begun to reign. Notice they don't say, who was and who is and who was and who is to come like they do everywhere else. They stop at who is and who was because now is the who is to come. He's here now. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both great and small. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. An interesting phrase and title and label for those who oppose God. Who gets judged for eternity? Those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. John sets this image of the final return of Christ to sit on his throne forever, right at the center point, at the mountaintop of the book of Revelation. Why does he do it that way instead of at the end? Well, he does it there too. He's a poet in his writing. He's a prophet in his writing. He's circling up to a mountaintop. He's going to rewind time in the next chapter and start talking about spiritual reality from another angle. But right now we have the final coming of Christ to reign and to finally judge and to finally vindicate his saints and give them their reward The heavenly choir sings praises. They announce that Judgment Day is here. The temple of God is opened. The ark appears in the heavenly temple. What's that? It signifies God's here. Did you guys uh, see my Facebook yesterday? Not everybody here follows me. I'm not trying to build a platform. You know Wayfair.com? They have everything you need. The ark of the covenant is on sale for 70% off, including contents. I saw that and I'm like, what is happening with this ark? Uh, It's a little jewelry box or something like that. You can have the Ark of the Covenant on your dresser and put your jewelry in it (laughs) and something. And I just thought, how awful is that? I finally figured out where the ark is. Wayfair has it and they're selling it for 70% off. (laughs) Where's the Ark of the Covenant? It's appearing in the heavenly temple. God's finally coming. He's finally back. And with it comes flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail, all images, Old Testament images of judgment. And that's where we're going to pause the action for today. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? What are we supposed to do with John seeing this gargantuan angel thing? What do we do with measuring a temple and two witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem. I want us to notice. I want us to notice some things. I want us to notice five things. Notice the authority of Christ. Throughout this book, we see that Jesus is absolutely in control of the unfolding of the events of history. Nobody else can unseal the scroll. Nobody else is causing... History to unfold, including judgment and suffering. Jesus is in control of it all. He's the one that opens the seven seals. He's the one that authorizes the blowing of the seven trumpets. He's sitting on the throne. Nothing is happening apart from his notice and permission. The seven thunders here are a reminder to us. What's up with the seven thunders? They're a reminder to us. He did not allow John to talk about them, meaning that they never happened. If he would have said, write down the seven thunders, the seven thunders would have happened and another round of judgment on the earth could have happened. But he said, don't write that one down. And it don't happen. That's the one thing we're supposed to know, I think, about the seven thunders. Notice the severity of judgment. I talked to a young man a few weeks ago after church. And one of his big questions—he was not a believer; he didn't claim to be. He might be here this morning. I don't know. The crime, uh, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, is an accusation I've heard often when talking to people who are exploring the idea of eternal punishment. And I and I and I wanted to say to him something. I think I did. I can't remember exactly how the conversation went. It was a great conversation. We talked about a lot of things. It took two and a half hours. And on Sunday afternoon, my brain gets a little foggy. One of the things that we talked about is that word "seems." The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. Shakespeare talked about that word "seems" a lot." Just because something seems like something to us doesn't mean that that's the way it is. The, pun- the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, should point us to reexamining our opinion about the crime. how bad is an offense against an infinitely worthy, infinitely holy God? Well, think of it this way. Um, If you were to judge two murder trials, and in one murder trial, there was a man who went around for fun, torturing, and I apologize, maybe I shouldn't go there, killing children. One man went around killing children, for fun. And another man, another man was fighting a criminal, trying to protect an innocent bystander, but killed, but ended up kill him, killed, killing, killing him. Same result, the ending of the life of a human being. Why does our judicial system allow for two different levels of punishment? Because we all know that there are extraneous factors when it comes to crime. Uh, One of the ancient church fathers put it this way, the, the, the severity of the punishment goes along with the worthiness of the one offended, the worthiness of the one offended or the innocence of the one offended. So a sin against an infinitely holy and pure God who is worthy because he has not only created us, not only does he own us, but he has shown us explicitly the way. He has given us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for centuries to repent and turn to him and change our ways. And yet we refuse. We should re-examine our opinion of how severe the crime is when we look at the severity of judgment. In our passage today, John has commissioned, John is commissioned as a prophet to talk about the coming judgment, the consequence of our pride and rebellion against God, Paul puts it this way in Romans. This is the judgment. Because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so they do what is not right. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Kids, listen to that one. They put disobedient to parents in the same list with murdering, envying, slandering. Think about that for a second. All the parents say, amen. Amen senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful, although they know God's just sentence because they have heard it preached to them that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they applaud others who practice them. And brothers and sisters, when we see lists like this in the Bible, we are meant first to look to our own hearts and say, that was once me. He goes on later in Romans. And he refers to these people who are caught here as slaves to sin, Romans 6. When you were slaves to sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. I like the ESV here better. We just switched to CSV, but I want my ESV back for just a minute on verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Think about that. What fruit were you getting? The outcome of those things is death, but now you've been set free from sin and have been enslaved to God. You have, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and out, the outcome is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, he goes on to say, through faith in him. Notice the severity of punishment, but also also, the holdout of mercy, I want to put that just right beside the severity of punishment, the severity of the judgment. Notice the expectation of persecution. Revelation is realistic about the reality of oppression and persecution because sinful mankind is in rebellion against God. And I wonder if the reason that persecution and these things in in Revelation seem like such a distant, maybe future reality to us is because our country is not because our country is such a wonderful, peaceful place to live, necessarily, but maybe it's because we're not forward enough in our proclaiming of our faith. Now, I don't think we should go looking for trouble. I don't think we should go looking for trouble. I think there are wise ways to do this. I think there are foolish ways to do this, and I think the Bible even teaches you can suffer for being foolish, but... I wonder if it's far more likely that rather than being foolish, we're being left alone and largely living at peace because we aren't speaking up. Just something to think about. Notice the security of his people. In chapter 7, God's people are sealed with a seal that protects him from his wrath. In today's chapter, those who are securely in the temple worshiping, those who are in Christ are measured or they are secured from those who are trampling the courts. His two witnesses cannot be overcome while they are carrying out the ministry God has given them to do. We are secure in Christ. Notice the victory of Christ. We'll end with this one. So far in Revelation... First half of the book, we've seen that Jesus has conquered death by dying on the cross in our place for our sin, and he was raised by God to rule over all creation. I'm going to end with this passage from Ephesians 1, because this is my prayer for us. As we think about revelation, as we think about what does this mean for us, how does this matter in our daily life? Ephesians 1, 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so you may know what is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? Think about that for a second. How does this relate to your daily life? Hope. The wealth of his inheritance. What do you get as the reward? And this power. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? How much power? How much power? Here's the rest of this verse. How much power is available to the Christian? Well, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet, I don't know, two blazing pillars of fire standing on the ocean and on the land and one hand raised to the sky and appointed him as head over everything for the church. That ruler, that Christ is our head. He's our leader. He's our captain. He's our master. The church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. That's what's available to us. The specific application of those five points. What does this have to do with us during our daily life? I'm not sure I can answer that for every single individual one of you. But I know, I promise you this, that if you take any individual struggle that you're coming up with, maybe you're struggling with a situation at the office, maybe you're stressed out about something at school, maybe you're worried about how something is going for your family, maybe you're unsure uh, of what you're supposed to be doing with your life, maybe a friendship is having trouble right now, maybe you're struggling with your faith because of circumstances in your life and disappointments and uh, things that are not coming along. And, And these truths, that Christ sees you, that he's in control, that there's a huge spiritual war going on, which is part of the reason you're suffering, by the way. But he knows what he's doing. He loves you. He's with you. He walks among us. These connections to our daily life, they may not seem very obvious, but I guarantee you that if you're a believer and you pray to him through these five things when you are going through your individual struggle, you hold any individual struggle at the office, in in the classroom, in the home, in your friendships, up to these five points, And pray through them, Lord, help me connect these dots, that he's going to do it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I'm just so grateful for you and um, stand in awe and humility at the weight of uh, this passage, these words, the, the, the truth about who you are, reigning on a throne in heaven, calling people to yourself, protecting your people, sealing them, guiding them, even leading them through death, scary death, leading them through that to glory, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would help keep our that you would help us keep our eyes on our glory and sing that song that you are worthy. Lord, thank you for the inevitable future that the kingdom of the world, which is currently beset with beasts and dragons and plagues and locusts and uh, tormenting people, that that kingdom will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and you will reign forever. Help us to keep our eyes set on that day. Help us to live, as it were, in, with a foot in that world. Help us to make this church an embassy, an outpost, a, in, a, in a sense that sealed off, that measured off temple and altar, where you reign now. Lord, reign in our hearts. Help us repent of our idolatry, our things that we're holding out from you. Draw us to yourself. Help us to know you better. And Lord, as we go out from here into this world, the outer courts that are being trampled by the world, help us remember that we're safe and secure in you. Help us to proclaim you by the way we work, by the way we treat people, and with our words explicitly. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.